As we've been uh, walking through this Advent season, we've considered the promise of Christ, that the Christ was to come, that the coming of Christ was God's perfect plan from the beginning, foretold since the garden. And while the promise of his coming is ancient, the Christ who came is eternal. Last week we talked about the purpose of the Advent that Christ would save. It was the promise, uh, the promise of Christ was innately tied to his purpose. The Christ was to be the fulfillment of all that God had promised his people. The Christ who came would save his people from their sins. This week, we look at the idea that the Christ is God. That Christ's coming fulfilled God's promise and it served God's purpose of redeeming a people for himself. And it also expressed God's personal love for his people. God created created us for an intimate relationship with him that sin destroyed. And his love is so great that he sent his son not only to save us, but to reveal himself to us more completely. Just as the Old Testament foretold his coming, the Gospels reveal him. We see God in Christ in the Gospel. The epistles explain the meaning of that and how we walk it out. Next week we'll consider what the book of Revelation and the other uh, eschatological prophecies tell us about the second advent when he returns. Today, as we focus on God's presence with us in the Christ, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Reading as we did from Matthew, we're building our our series from the text of Matthew this season. Then on Christmas Day, we'll turn our attention to Luke. But in Matthew chapter 1, we'll look at verses 18 to 25. We saw 18 to 21 last week. We'll, we will continue through the rest of the, the section, through the rest of the chapter. Matthew records it this way. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Father, as we open your word today, we ask for your guidance. 
We don't need to hear from some preacher and get human opinion. We need to know what your word tells us and we need to know how to apply that to our lives. Father, unfortunately, our our sinful flesh is not prone to submit to you. It's not even capable of submitting to you. So we ask by your spirit that you would take hold of us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would break us, Father. Lord, help us never to leave our minds out. You gave us reason on purpose. But help us to recognize the reasonableness of the faith. Lord, speak to us today by your Spirit. Illuminate the text of your word to us that we might understand the Christ who came. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to record in today's text, our core reality Uh, The the melodic line that runs through this whole text and through today's message is this. The Christ who came is God in flesh, present with his people. It's printed for you in your programs. It's up on the screen. I want to invite you to think that through as I read it for you again. The Christ who came is God in flesh, present with his people. Now, Just so you know, the plan today is to take a look at at what it means that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, and how that affects our lives today. But before we do that, we want to build a platform from which we can work. So we'll take a little spin through a number of relevant passages, and then we'll return to develop the ideas a little bit. So as we get started here, I'm going to invite you to turn, we'll look at at a, a Uh, several uh, New Testament passages, and then we'll uh, go back to the Old Testament and and revisit what Brad read for us this morning. So turn, if you would, from Matthew uh, to the right to John chapter 1. We have four Gospels there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Easy names to remember and even pronounce. Don't always get that in the Scriptures. When you find John chapter 1, We'll start at the beginning. John says it this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Incidentally, just a little parenthetical here. This is why our Christmas celebrations and our decorations with all these lights, yes, absolutely, the holiday itself was uh, was Christianized, was taken from pagan rituals before but in the midst of the darkness of winter we celebrate with light in the midst of a sin darkened world God sent the light 
Jesus is the light of the world. And so as we celebrate with Christmas, forget about pagan garbage and recognize that those pretty lights you see should be reminding us that Jesus is the light in our darkness. Continuing with verse 6, John tells us there was a, a man sent from God. His name was John. He's speaking of John the baptizer, John the immerser. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Notice verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Continuing from in verses 15 to 18, John is, is clarifying, again, speaking of John the Baptist, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. All right? So we see that God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Turn to the right a few more chapters, still in John, to John chapter 14. Now you may remember a familiar verse in John 14, 6. We're going to look at John 14, 9, but while you're looking it up, I'll, I'll read from verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The focus here is not prayer 
The focus is the reality of who Jesus is. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Turn to the right a little bit more. We'll go to the book of Philippians. Go past Acts and Romans and the letters to the Corinthians. Jump over Galatians and Ephesians. You can land in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's in the middle of telling the believers, the church at Philippi, all of the New Testament is in the context of the local church. That's why we emphasize it so much. That's why we do things like have membership and and dedicate children in, in the context of this household of faith. Because we can only do what the Bible calls us to do when we actually have people with faces and irritating habits we can't love people in theory we have to love people as they are in reality and if you have any family at all you know that's difficult he's in the middle of telling them how to walk how to how to have christ's humility his mindset in themselves and and as he's doing that he I would say lapses into, but that's not really right. He kind of runs headlong into this doxology, this praise of Christ, but it's a teaching, uh, it's a teaching element that appears to be from, from a, a song or, a, or perhaps a creed uh, that was used at the time. And here's what he says in verse 6 and following, speaking of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, The Christ is God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. His point in this section is the humility of Christ as he condescended to become one of us. He lowered himself. He stooped down to become one of us. Made himself nothing, verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance or form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. It was humbling enough for him to humble himself unto life as a human. The God of all creation who made all things utterly dependent on the placenta of a young woman. It's an astonishing idea. But not only did he condescend to human life, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And Paul clarifies and emphasizes even death on a cross, a humiliating death for criminals. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Little, uh, you know, little coming events trailer. Pretty good chance you're going to see that passage again next week. <laughs> Flip the page to the next book, to Colossians chapter 1. Paul again writing here to a different church. Each of these letters were circulated through the churches in various ways. Some that was their intent and some were written to specific people and then, uh, and then circulated. But as he writes to the church at Colossae, 
in Colossians 1, he is, uh, he's given thanks for their faith. He's letting them know that he's praying for them. But here in the middle of, of chapter 1, he builds out the idea of who Christ is. If you have a Bible that has chapter headings, those are not divinely inspired. Those are added by editors to help you see where you are. But it may say something like the supremacy of Christ or the centrality of Christ or Christ above all things. Here's what the word says starting with verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the invisible God made visible for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. That's speaking not mainly of chronology, but mainly of supremacy, that he is above, he is beyond, he is greater, he is supreme over all things. And yes, chronology as well. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, God with us, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christ is God. Turn farther toward the back of the book. Jump over some letters there to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the longer letters that remain, so it should be easy to find as you move to the right. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. Between Hebrews and Revelation, they're kind of skinny. But when you get there, find Hebrews chapter 1. I want to read so much more. We'll just read the first four verses here. You know, I make notes to keep myself on track in case you're wondering. The biggest part of this is editing out all the stuff I want to say. So, anyhow, trying to keep myself restrained here, we'll just read the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he, <clears throat> excuse me, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Right, so we've seen this already. Christ created everything. Everything was created through Christ. Apart from Christ, nothing was created. Christ is God. Through Christ, God created the universe. Verse 3, the Son, I love this phrasing, is the radiance of God's glory. Let that sink in for a second. I'm going to read it again because it, it needs to just kind of wash over us as we grasp this idea. 
the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, just so we're not confused, Christ's nature didn't change and and he earned his way up. There are some uh, out there who teach that. They are not Christians. The idea that Jesus earned his way into deity, that he was human and he became God through his obedience and suffering, that is not what this text is saying. He was already God. All things were created through him. He became human, and in his humanness, we're told that he was made a little lower than the angels as man. He was made in his created physical body, which we read in Philippians 2, he humbled himself to receive. Jesus then was made a little lower than the angels to be one of us. And when he ascended, when he Return to the Father, we see here that God appointed him heir and made him higher than the angels, restored him to the former glory, even though now Jesus, having ascended in his physical form, has a glorified physical body. That's for another time for us to discuss. But he is the radiance of God's glory. And he wears the name of the Father, which he inherited by right as the only begotten Son of God. Let me have you turn back to the Old Testament now, past Matthew, not very much past Matthew, to the book of Zephaniah. These minor prophets in the Old Testament can get a little skinny. You should be able to find it. We'll give you some time. If you're in Matthew, you can back up past uh, past Malachi, past Zechariah, past Haggai. get to Habakkuk you went a little too far the reason they're called minor prophets is because their books are small the major prophets wrote big books I cannot lie Stacy's going to chuckle every time I make that joke alright so Zephaniah 3 Brad read this for us to begin our service and this is perhaps If not my favorite, it's definitely one of my favorite God with us passages. And as we go through, hopefully you'll see that later. There's a picture here, not only of God being with us, but being on our side, fighting for us. And most of all, delighting in his people. 
Zephaniah 3, verses 14 to 17. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So as we see these texts, they were chosen to give us a picture of what it means that God is with us. When we see this idea of Emmanuel, it's only used uh, in Isaiah other than, than in this passage. We see this uh, in Isaiah as a prophecy for the nation at the time. They would not have understood yet, as we do, because it, the Holy Spirit reveals it to us in Matthew. They would not have understood yet that this prophecy of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 has to do with Messiah as a general rule. At least not in the same way that we do. Not, not with the same clarity. Isaiah's wife, or would be his wife, the, the maiden, the virgin, conceived a child and gave birth as part of a near-term prophecy fulfillment. She was, she was a virgin at the time and became pregnant through the normal means Mary remained a virgin and there was nothing normal about this birth at all Mary remained a virgin until after Christ was born the first the firstborn not only of Mary but of a new nation what would one day become a resurrected nation. What does it mean that God is with us? Let's, let's take a look at this. As we're going through this, we're going to see a, a number of things uh, that are observably clear as far as the aspects, the, the connotations of what it means that, that Messiah, the Christ, is God with us. And as we see the presence of God in Christ... It means at least these things. It may, may mean more, but these are observable, clear things that we can grasp in the way that this idea of being with us is used throughout the scriptures. First off, notice this. Emmanuel is God who dwells among us. Emmanuel is God who dwells among us. Now that, that's pretty easy for us to, to see, right? We all, when we think of God with us, and Jesus being born in Bethlehem to be God among us, it, it's kind of easy for us to grasp that. We see it in John 1, as we just read. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling. He dwelt among us. We see in Colossians 1. We see in, in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is God among us. And just as He said in John 14 to His disciples, when you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He's here. So this nearness of God, he's present in nearness to us here. 
is reminiscent. It's the full revelation of what we see from the beginning. If you go back, you don't have to turn, but if you go back to Genesis in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters the system, there is no division between God and humanity. Right? God walks with them in the cool of the day is the phrasing that's used. Now, obviously, that's an anthropomorphism. In other words, it's, uh, it's using human language to describe the infinite and eternal principle. God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. So when we see things referring to God in these, uh, in these personifications, these anthropomorphisms, what it's doing is using language of humanity to convey something about God. So what we see, however that worked out, is that God is present with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's no sin to separate them. In fact, in Genesis 3, when sin happens, when they rebel, they wouldn't have thought about it as rebelling any more than you and I often think of our sin as rebelling. When we do our thing instead of God's thing, we're not usually thumbing our nose at God and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Sometimes. But we're, most of the time, our sins happen as we choose without realizing or thinking that we're choosing. We choose to run our own show. That's what happened with them. God gives them a perfect situation, said, there's one thing you can't do, you can do everything else, one thing you don't do. They listen to the voice of an interloper and say, huh, well, that's the one thing we want to do. And they bought it. And he misled them by distorting God's word to them. And when God confronts them, we're told that as he walked in the cool of the day, God's there with them in the garden. And that confrontation and the curse and the fall caused them to be separated from God forever, even as we are. Now, I need to clarify something here because there is a, a great misunderstanding, I think, that, that we often have. There is, and, and I've heard preachers uh, talk about this before, and maybe some of you have as well, we say, well, why do we so often pray for God to be with us? Because God is always with us. God is omnipresent, right? Say amen if you know that's right. God is always with us. And yet, God is not always with us. That's very clear in the scripture because the very presence of God with his people is an amongness, a nearness that has a lot more to it than just God existing in a realm. Because God does exist everywhere all at once because he's God. As we walk through the rest of this, we'll see the other connotations of what that means. In Isaiah chapter 6, you can turn there if you would. We'll look at the first eight verses there. If you happen to still be in Zephaniah, you're going to go back to the left. Otherwise, you can find the Psalms in the middle of your Bible and then slide to the right a little bit. Isaiah is a major prophet, a bigger book, so a little easier to find. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet receives his calling or his commission from God. But it happens in what is tantamount to the presence of God. He has a vision, and in this vision, he is in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet writes, 
is starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Then he describes what he saw. Seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe is the symbol of his glory. His glory filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, or seraphim, the, the, the plural of seraph, which means burning ones. These are angelic beings of fire. I'm just thinking a little overwhelming, right? So just let, let your mind uh, entertain the thoughts of what it would be like to be seeing the Lord himself seated on a throne, lifted up, exalted, with his glorious robe filling the temple, and above him were burning ones, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. These are pictures of humility, hiding from the glory of the Holy One. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. Man, we ought to sing that song way more often than we do. And, and, and it ought to stir us and rouse us. But as we see in this passage, what it really ought to do is break us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Interestingly, the, His robe fills the temple and the earth is His temple. The earth is God's footstool even. This is where he manifests himself. All of the earth belongs to him. His glory fills the earth. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the seraph's voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Guys, this is what happens when God is present. In Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers, when we see God's presence, He manifests Himself in fire. When He's on Mount Sinai, the people have to stay off the mountain. Even the livestock are told to stay off the mountain. And Moses goes up and the leaders go to the foot of the mountain and Joshua goes up with them. But Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And what they see while Moses is on the mountain is fire and smoke and shaking, trembling earthquakes. Because that's what the presence of God does. He's so beyond, so other, so vast and majestic that this is how we get the picture of who He is. But notice Isaiah's response, his reaction. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I said we'd go to 8. We'll stop here at, at 6. Maybe we'll pick up 8 later. Here's what we need to grasp from this. Emmanuel is God who dwells among us. What effect does that have on us? God with us gives us 
reason to fear. Now, that's probably not what you expected to hear or what you wanted to hear <laughs> because we have this nostalgic, sentimental picture of Christmas and the baby in the manger and Jesus is, is soft and cuddly and, and so we have a soft, cuddly God. No. God with us gives us reason to fear. Over and over, the scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we don't fear God, then we have not seen him. To see God means death to an unholy one. And so Isaiah, seeing God, being in the presence in this vision, it's just a vision, but in the presence of God, the majestic one, high and exalted, whose glory fills not only the temple, but the whole earth and shakes the foundations of everything. Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a dead man. Because I know I'm a sinner. And all my people are sinners. And I've been in the presence of God. I cannot stand. God with us. God among us. Near us. Gives us reason to fear. We won't look up all the scriptures that I have listed. Because uh, I really want to. But we're not. But let's turn back to the Psalms. Okay, so turn back to the left, jump over some of the books there between, and you get to the Psalms. Find Psalm 139. Familiar for most of us. And maybe we don't always see the context. In, in Psalm 139, this is a psalm of, of comfort and yet also not. It's a psalm that we so often focus on in, in pro-life circles, on the sanctity of life, that, that God has knitted us together in our mother's womb. And, and we don't want to miss that. We don't want to neglect that. But the psalm is bigger. Here's what the psalmist writes. Psalm 139, starting with verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. Okay, so that opening verse ought to give us a picture of everything that's coming later. Right? That, that's the picture. Jump to the end, to verse uh, 23. You've searched me, you know me. 23, 24, the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see the parallel there from the first verse to the last? It's the, it's the intimacy. It's God knowing us, seeing through us. And in the end, the psalmist surrenders himself to the Lord. Lord, do what you already do. I invite you. He's already acknowledged that God already knows him. Okay, let's, let's continue. Lord, verse 1, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Let me just stop there. Because we use this as a comforting verse, but let's be honest. If the holy God, before whom no imperfection, unholiness, or sin can stand, if he knows your inner thoughts before you even get them out, if he's familiar with 
all of your ways, not, not, not your good ways, not your church ways, but all of your ways, does that really sound like a good thing? It's easy for us to, to hide who we are, our darker places, from other people. We come to church, we put on our best behavior, and we don't talk about what we did Saturday night. And we don't give much thought. We certainly don't want to reveal the attitudes that we carry into work on Monday morning. But, but here at church, you know, it's, it's good. We put on our best, you know, our best look, our best face, and we act all spiritual and sing songs and all that. God knows the inside. There's not a thought you can think. There's not a sin you can desire. You don't even have to carry it out. The fact that you desire it, God already knows can't stand before that God. God with us, God among us is an earth-shaking fear because of sin. He goes on, you hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Wait, hold on a second. Why would I flee from the presence of God if this is a comforting passage? I flee from the presence of God because I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips and my eyes have beheld the Holy One and even more, He has beheld me. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, there's two sides to this coin. In myself, in my nature, fear is the only logical response. But if God is on my side, if God says, you are my child, and I love you, then his hand guiding me and holding me fast is a whole different world. As we'll see throughout this, the, the great theology of the very first VeggieTales movie is right. God is the biggest, and he's on my side. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Let there never be any question about the sanctity of unborn life. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In the midst of a fearful thing, the psalmist finds comfort in the nearness, the amongness, the presence of God because of the relationship they have. Notice how he finishes this, starting in verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So much for loving the sinner. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way, any offensive way in me and lead me. Lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. Okay, so we need to press on for the sake of time. God with us gives us reason to fear because he knows us we are without excuse and we see in Hebrews 4 that because he was tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin Jesus is the reason or at least the biggest clarification of why we have no excuse because he did what we don't he lived among us as one of us, put on flesh, tempted in every way just the same way we are. Every temptation that you have, that you face, you don't think the devil brought that against Jesus as hard as could be brought? And yet never once, never once in thought or in deed, in action or in omission, did he sin. That's amazing. But even more, that's damning to us because we should have lived without sin. It's commanded and expected and none of us ever can. Which is why the next part becomes so important. Notice this. Emmanuel is God who identifies with us. Emmanuel is God who identifies with us. As we read in, uh, as we read in Psalm 139, he's with us, he knows our thoughts. There's no place we can go to escape it. He knows not only our sin, but he also knows our struggle. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 4. You can turn there if you like. You don't need to. Hebrews 4, I'll be looking at verses 14 to 16. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's presence is a reason to fear and yet, he chooses to identify with us. He knows our struggle as well as he knows our sin. This makes him 
relatable. He's, he identifies with us so that we can relate to him. Don't be confused. It's not that God didn't understand our struggle before. He made us, right? He, he knows. There's nothing God doesn't know, right? I'm going to say that again. That's a really good place for an amen. There's nothing God doesn't know. Amen. Sometimes God coach it up a little bit. But we didn't know that he could know. We can't relate to an invisible, perfect, majestic being that makes the mountains and the temples shake that the angels cover their faces and feet before. I can't relate to that. I can relate to a person. So in Jesus Christ, when we see him, we've seen the Father. God put on flesh. He became one of us. He lived among us. And he is our great high priest who did it all right. But he doesn't just stand as a condemning judge. He walked in our shoes and he knows our struggle. He may have already known it, but now I can know that he knows it. He becomes relatable because he has deigned to identify with us. Notice this. God with us gives us hope of salvation. God with us gives us hope of salvation. We can come to him boldly because he has chosen to identify with us, to offer grace and mercy. We read in Philippians 2 that he, he, he set aside all the cool things about being God to humble himself and be one of us, to face the death that we deserved. In Isaiah 53, 6 in all of Isaiah 53, we see the Old Testament prophecy of the suffering servant that though he didn't sin, he would take on ours. The Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sin to give us hope of salvation. In Romans 5, 8, we see that God demonstrates his love for us. I'd love to, to turn you for your homework. Take a look at Romans 5 the first uh, 11 verses or so. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to identify with us so he could be our substitute. That we might have life in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin was made to become sin for us on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. God with us gives us hope of salvation because he chooses to identify with us. So God with us isn't just his presence. It's his identity. It's, it's that he, he chooses to make us his covenant people. That was the picture we saw uh, through, as we've been walking through numbers. We've been seeing that that's the theme. The promise means nothing without his presence. Lord, if if you're not going with us, we don't want to go up. Then the people later on, they're like, well, let's just go. The Lord says, I'm not going with you. Well, we're going to go anyway. We're going to go do this. We're going to make up for our sin. We're going, we're going to try to, by our own uh, activity, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It doesn't end well. It never does. Because it's the presence of God among his people with his people, on behalf of his people, that matters. Notice this, Emmanuel is God who fights for us. 
Emmanuel is God who fights for us. He's with us in nearness. He's present in identifying with us. Here we see that he's present as our advocate as well. This is a major theme of God's covenant relationship with his people. We saw it recently in Numbers 13 to 14 as the, uh, the spies were saying, oh, we got to go back to Egypt. There's giants in the land. And Caleb said, are you nuts? What's wrong with you? Don't rebel against God. These people are going to be like bread for us. This is gonna, we're just going to go in and snack on these giants. It doesn't even matter. They're, they're not even relevant. They have no protection and we have God. God is with us. He is not with them. He is with us. It doesn't mean he wasn't present. He was present everywhere. But he's for us. He's on our side. He fights for us. Emmanuel is God who fights for us. It's a recurring theme in the Psalms. All throughout the history of God's people, we see that the Lord is our shield our defender, our mighty fortress, our strong tower. The Lord's right arm delivers his people. He commands courage. We see that in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1. Now we see this picture as he's calling his people and specifically those who are leading his people to be strong and of good courage. But he's not telling them to be strong in themselves. Joshua and Moses weren't you know, powerful warriors in themselves. In fact, as they're leading, they're not even doing the fighting. They are representing God and when God is with them and the people are in obedience the book of Joshua is a great example of this as the people are walking in fellowship with God and God is with them he fights for them and they never lose and the only time they lose is when there's sin in the camp book of Judges everybody does what's right in their own eyes we follow our consciences and what happens loss after loss after loss after loss after loss because in our own strength, things fall apart. God commands courage. The core understanding of that is that the courage stems from trusting Him to work in His strength on behalf of us in our weakness. We have only to be still. Stories like uh, the conquering of Jericho in, in Joshua and, and Gideon's battle in, in Judges where God's like, you got too many people. Let me pare this down. Get rid of your 30,000. We're, we're going to go down to 300. Um, what? And, you know, you probably heard in Sunday school or from any, any number of preachers how the, the way God had them sorted out, you know, got the, the strong warriors and the weak ones went home. Hogwash. That's not even the point. That's actually contrary to the point. The point is, you don't need nobody because I'm fighting for you. So they go, they show up, and there's so much confusion in the other camp among trained mighty warriors that they end up chasing themselves around killing each other running them off because Gideon blew a trumpet had, had some lamps you know smashed some pots that's all God God fights for his people for your homework check out uh, a perfect example in 2nd Chronicles 20 it's not listed for you in your program so you might want to jot it down 2nd Chronicles 20 if you go to 1st Chronicles you'll be in the wrong place 2nd Chronicles 20 it's the story of Jehoshaphat when, when uh, the kingdom of Judah was facing an insurmountable attack by a co coalition of enemies. And Jehoshaphat, who was king at the time, said, okay, we got we to gotta talk to God. And he says, Lord, um, we can't do this. But you can. 
Are you not the God who has fought for his people from the beginning? And he recounts the deeds of the Lord. And the Lord says, you go on up. Just chill, right? I got this. You be still. I will fight for you. But he still doesn't go up. You know what they do when they go up? <laughs> Nothing. They just collect the goods. God already defeated the people before they showed up. There was no army left, just their things. So they take all the bounty, all the spoils of war, and that's what God assembled the army for so they could take it home with them. I'll fight for you. God fights for his people. What does this mean to us? Notice this. God with us gives us confidence in uncertainty. God with us gives us confidence in uncertainty. Anxiety is the true pandemic of our time. It is just overwhelming to see the anxiety in our society. Hey, that rhymed. <laughs> oh, good. Sorry, caught myself off guard. It's overwhelming to see the statistics. Even in the church. We have this overwhelming, this overwhelming presence of anxiety even in the church. Why? Are things worse than they've ever been? No, they're not. No matter what they tell you on the news, things are not worse. Right? Remember the days of Noah when everybody was so inclined to sin that God wiped the whole world out? We're not worse than that. Sometimes I wonder if we're not far This might be the worst that you've seen in your lifetime, but your lifetime is a blip on the radar of history. So let's, let's just ease up off of that. Dark times, for sure. And more dark times will come, and they will get worse before they get better before the Lord comes. But what's causing all the anxiety? We, as a people, as a society, in, in secular realms out here, we have detached from the reality of God. Sadly, and I say this with a broken heart and much conviction, sadly, in the church, even in evangelical churches, we have likewise been detached from the reality of God. We too often see religion as something we muster up rather than the outworking of the presence of Christ in our lives. When we see religion that way, it changes things, right? Religion isn't something I do to, to get right with God or to curb my behaviors. When we think of religion rightly, it's the reality, the relationship that you have with Christ working itself out visibly. And yet, so many of us treat it like it's a show to put on. That if we just get the right polish on our lives, that that knowing Jesus, going to church, it's going to it's gonna clean us up. It's going to make us more respectable. It's going to fix our families. It's going to do all these things. It's going to give us all this prosperity. And everything's going to work out. And we think that God's said that, you know, life's going to be a bowl of cherries. And as, as the joke goes, we find out it's really the pits. But that's just because we don't know him we know the world around us better than we know the promises of God. Why? Because the church doesn't spend enough time in the Bible. 
The church doesn't spend enough time in prayer. The church doesn't spend enough time together. We've prioritized everything else. Some of you are lamenting the fact that schools are now having practices and and activities, sports practices and activities and stuff on Sundays, even on Sunday mornings. Anybody sad about that? Guess whose fault that is? It's our fault. Because we've prioritized the things of the world over the things of God. Because we've said, well, you know, I can't have my kid miss a sports practice. Or I can't miss whatever it is. My plans, my job, my whatever. As if all of these things are more important than honoring God. And trusting Him to handle our uncertainty. Well, what am I going to do to pay my bills? God will handle it. You honor him, work your butt off, and honor him. Well, but what if, what if the coach doesn't recognize my kid? Really? This is what we care about? What if the coach does recognize your kid and they're first team all state and they get a college scholarship? Awesome. Except for they learned that God has second place. Okay, I didn't mean to get all riled up, sorry. God with us gives us confidence in uncertainty. We face uncertainty all the time. And uncertainty, uncertain goals, if we don't know how it's going to come out, we don't know how this situation is going to turn out, it causes fear and anxiety. Knowing and believing. Notice those are two different things, right? Knowing in my knower and resting on it, putting my weight on it. This is believing. Knowing and believing that God is with us and for us removes that uncertainty. As I said for your... uh, for your homework, you can check out Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. I don't know if it's listed for you. You might want to jot it down. Romans 5, 6 to 11. Romans 8, 31 to 39. I won't have you turn there, but we all know Romans 8, 28. That God has caused or is causing, causes all things to work together for good for those who love and are called according to his purpose. Right. doesn't mean everything's good. It means God uses even what isn't good to be good for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. But he goes on in verse 31 and uh, following to, to say this basic idea that if God loved us enough to send his son while we were dirtbag sinners who didn't even want him, how much more, how much more is he going to take care of us now that we're his children? If we've received his grace, we've trusted his son and been united to Christ, then do you really think God's going to leave you hanging? No, we can trust him because in Christ we are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from his love. Not anything, no way, no how. We can rest in him. So God with us gives us confidence in uncertainty. You might be saying, yeah, but I don't feel that. Yeah, feelings aren't the point. I have to choose in the midst of my feelings, that's what faith is, to align my thinking with the reality of who God is. 
And the better I know his promises and his character through his word, the better I can rest in that, pressing on for the sake of time. Emmanuel is God who never forsakes us. Emmanuel is God who never forsakes us. In Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is, is telling the people uh, as they prepare for Joshua to take over, the Lord says, be, be strong and courageous. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 cites that and says, keep yourselves free from the love of money because the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can see what that does for our uncertainty. If God's going to take care of me, this is why Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, what are you worrying about? Seek God. He'll take care of the rest. Don't, don't put your hope in all these things that moth and rust destroy. God, he, he, he clothes the flowers of the field better than Solomon. He's feeding the birds of the air. Do you really think he's going to leave his children hanging? Aren't you worth more than sparrows? Don't worry. Why does he say that? Because we worry. That's why he has to say it. Why does he say don't be afraid? Because we are afraid. Courage, as you all know, because the great theologian John Wayne already told us, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Right? Trust the reality of God. Emmanuel is God who never forsakes us. In Isaiah 43, 1-7, he tells us that he'll be with us in the fire and the flood. Don't misunderstand. He doesn't say he's going to keep the fire and flood from happening. He doesn't say bad things won't happen. He says, I'll be with you in it. Why? Because he will never forsake us. Notice this, God with us gives us comfort in hardship. God with us gives us comfort in hardship. That's the, the, the kernel at the center of Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, that, that doesn't mean the way we normally use it in, in, in contemporary speech. I, I, don't, I won't have desires for other things. Brother, we're going to have desires all the time. It's a better rendering in, in the NIV, I shall not be in want. Or in, uh, I think it's the ESV says, I, I shall lack nothing. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I don't have a reason to desire anything else because there's no part of anything worthwhile that I don't already have in him. And if he doesn't give it to me, I don't need it. And the sooner my mind embraces that, the more I can rest in the presence of my shepherd. But notice what he says as I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. So I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Will there be evil there? Well, yeah, it's the valley of the shadow of death. What do you think they called it that one? I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. God with us. God present, God fighting for us, God never forsaking us. That's what God with us means, and it gives us comfort in hardship. Finally, we see that Emmanuel is God 
who delights in us. Emmanuel is God who delights in us. This is an expression of his personal love for his people. We saw this already in Zephaniah 3. That he, and, and that's a passage, by the way, in dealing with Israel coming back from, or uh, uh, Judah coming back from their exile into Babylon. God has judged them for their sin, and, and he's saying, I, I've removed this sin. He's talking about something that's happening in the future, by the way. And the future in these prophecies, future and past, is mixed because in the economy of God, future and past is essentially the same thing. When God says it, you can count it done. You can take it to the bank. Mark it down. And when he says that I'm not going to remember your sins against you, it's done. When he says I'm going to wipe out your enemies, it's done. When he says I will delight in you, God isn't kidding. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. The last thing I'm going to have you look up, I promise. Unless I'm lying and I'd have you look up something else. I'm not lying, I'm just kidding. Ephesians chapter 1. Now in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is, is building out this picture of who we are in Christ. And in chapter 1, he's rejoicing and praising God over it. And the reason that Paul is rejoicing and praising God is because God is excited to bless his children. Notice what he says. Uh, picking up verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him. He chose us. In him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Wait, adoption means he chose us to be his beloved children. He delights in us. In accordance with his pleasure, it pleases God to do this and will. He has determined to do this. There's a resoluteness to it. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That he, if you're reading an NIV, notice the verb lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There's no accident here. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, speaking of these uh, apostles, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Think of Andy writing his name on the shoe of his toy, right? This is Andy's toy. You are God's. You belong to him. And that seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
The Father delights to give us an inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. At the end of chapter 3, Paul gets so excited, he, he has a, a little doxology there. He just bursts into praise. And he gives a benediction in the middle of his letter saying, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I do not have time to take you through the scriptures that speak of the lavish love that he's poured out on us. The fact that God delights in us. He takes joy and pleasure in his children. He wants to bless his children. He's not some stingy God who could bless you, but he only does it if you do just the right thing at just the right time in just the right way. And if you say the magic words, then he'll do it. And if you don't, then eh, sorry. God wants to pour out goodness on his children because he delights in us. Notice, God with us gives us desire to please him. God with us gives us desire to please him. I'm going to skip the other references for the sake of time and just draw your attention to Romans 12.1. You don't have to turn there. I think it's written in your program, but Romans 12.1. Paul's laid out the human condition that we are all condemned by nature. That's how, how we start out. But God made Christ a sacrifice of atonement in our place. God did that. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. We all fall short of his glory and we have earned death with our, with our own sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was all God's doing. A monergistic act, if you will. And because of that, then Paul says at the beginning of Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, Make your bodies, make, make, your, make your lives a living sacrifice. It's your spiritual, reasonable act of worship. What else are you going to do? He died for you. Why would you not live for him? The kindness, the grace, the unearned favor of the God who is with us, among us, fighting for us, identifying with us, never forsaking us, who delights in us. This kind of grace gives us a reason to want to please him. So, little flesh example. I think we all know, we all recognize that a parent can make a child obey with a stern attitude and a hard hand. And the moment the child is out of sight of the parent, the incentive to obey goes away. But a child who knows that their parent loves them and delights in them and is proud of them and can't wait to spend time with them and lavish their love on them, that child wants to obey, longs to please the father. God with us gives us desire to please him. 
The Christ who came is God in flesh, present with his people, and all that that means, all that we read in the Christmas story took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And this one named Jesus, God is our salvation, God saves, they will call Emmanuel, which means God with us. 